0: Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Oh, the times, they are a-changing. So noted, Bob Dylan. Conveying a sentiment we all know all too well, time by definition is always in a state of flux. No matter who we are, no matter how bad we've been or no matter how good we've been, we all seem to agree that we want more of it. We want more time. It can be said that those of us here today live under the oppressive tyranny of time. It hovers over us in every single moment, reminding us how much more we still have to do as we hear that clicking in the back of our head, reminding us that we are running out of time. Today, the demands on our time are overwhelming homes have to accommodate for multiple work schedules. Children have to balance manifold school responsibilities. Extracurricular activities are scheduled with no end in sight. Doctors appointments are made months ahead in advance with the hope we'll actually be seen on time when we arrive. In our family, years ago, we tried to make an actual physical calendar work. And We bought a calendar at a store. We put it on our refrigerator and we wrote down what appointments we had, when we had to be, where we had to be, who was going to take the boy, all these things. And guess what? It didn't work. <laughs> now we rely on a calendar that's on our phones that we can access at any time so that I know what I need to do, where I need to be, how I need to be there, what time I need to be there, and what's coming next, what groceries I have to get, all that stuff. Because we always feel like we don't have enough time. And then we add the season of Advent on top of all that. It is a new time for us. But for many of us, Advent isn't really about a new year in the life of the church. It's about how in the world are we going to make it from Thanksgiving to Christmas. You know, because we've got to redecorate our homes. We've got to find all the perfect presents and find the time to wrap all the perfect presents. We've got to get the kids to the Christmas concert. We have to show up at their Christmas concert. We have to coordinate schedules with in-laws about who's arriving when, who's going to cook what. Then we have to figure out when we're going to sit down and open up those perfect presents that we wrapped perfectly. And then we have to show up to church every single Sunday at 11 o'clock. And we have to come to Christmas Eve at either 3 o'clock or 7 o'clock. And we have to do all of this while pretending my life is okay. I've got it all under control. I'm not stressed out. I'm fine. And then we can add even more by how rapid-fire our communication is with each other. We've fallen prey to this belief that we have to be connected with each other all the time, 24-7, instantaneously. It's left us feeling like we have to know everything about everyone's business, and everyone needs to know everything about our own business. And today we measure our success, we measure our value on the number of likes we get on a photo, or the number of times we get a retweet on a tweet we thought up under the tryptophan haze while we're sitting around the Thanksgiving table. This understanding of time and communication and how connected they are, it was made known to me this last week when I called a member of our church just to check in on them, ask them how they were doing, and they said, oh, you know, we've been really busy ever since we got back from vacation. And I, trying to be kind, said, oh. Where did you go on vacation? And the person on the phone, instead of just telling me where they went to vacation, their response was, Didn't you see all the pictures we posted on Facebook? Didn't you see where we were? Didn't you see all the things we had to do when we were on vacation? And I thought if I had been a little more human, less pastoral in that moment, I would have said, Do you think I sit at home refreshing Facebook every 15 seconds to find out where you went on your vacation? <laughs> the times, they're changing. And it's knowing how much time is changing that St. Paul shows up and has the gall to say, Hey, you Christians, you know what time it is. And I don't. I don't know if you do. And I fall prey to this nagging sensation that life is just clicking by and I'm barely keeping up. I grow frustrated every time I get on 95 and I see more red lights and traffic, thinking about how I'm not going to get to where I need to be at the time I need to be there. I sigh as my son drags his feet up the stairs, delaying his bedtime with every minute that passes. I tap my toes while I'm waiting in line behind yet another family that can't figure out how many coupons they want to put on the conveyor belt to pay for their food. I don't know about you, but I find myself resenting time. I resent how little time I feel like I actually have. And St. Paul says, you know what time it is. Of course, for Paul, the time he's talking about is not the time we often think about. It's not this ruler that we experience. Time for Paul is not the fear of getting everything done from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Time for Paul is nothing less than the transformation of the world in Jesus Christ. Jesus has changed time forever. I don't know if you noticed it when I read it, but he says, You know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake up from your sleep. We're honest with ourselves. We're not really sure that we like the tone that Paul has for us. I mean, who does he think he is telling us to wake up? Doesn't he know how hard we try, how hard we work every single day at this crazy thing called life? You would think that he'd have a little more respect for the work that we're doing in the world. But he's not wrong. We all need to wake up. Me too. We need to wake up not just Out of the craziness the world has told us we're supposed to experience this time of year, though we should wake up from that too. But we need to wake up from this lie that we've fed ourselves about who we are and what we're doing with our lives. Paul, he's hitting us over the head, as is often the case, with the fact that the coming of Christ into the world, his crucifixion by the powers and principalities, his resurrection from the dead, his promised return have overturned everything we thought we knew. It has literally changed everything. There's this great line that we often gloss over. He says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. For a lot of us, that moment of becoming a believer, it came with a catch. If we believe this, then God will do this. If we lay aside our sins, then God will give you eternal life as your reward. If you promise to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, then God will love you back. The problem with that is there is no such thing as if in the kingdom of God. I have an acquaintance. Uh, he's a church planner. He lives on the West Coast. He's in Oregon. And I was talking to him this week about his experience of the church, his experience of life. And he said a number of years ago, he thought like God was calling him to start a new church. He felt like there weren't a whole lot of Christians in Oregon, and he wanted to try to make some more. So he started gathering with people from his community in his house on Sundays, and the longer he did it, the more and more people started to show up. And he was using an old trick of the trade. He was trying to scare people into salvation. And fire insurance sells if you're really worried about burning forever and ever and ever. And so he would go find people at the lowest moments of their lives, and he would say, if you turn it around, if you get your life together, God will reward you. And doesn't that sound nice? So week after week, more and more people came to his house until they were so big and had raised so much money, they were able to buy their own property and build their own building. Now, after about five years of growth, it started to plateau. You know, this sense of being told every single week, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you need to get better, you need to get better, that can only last so long. He said after about five years, he was doing his annual baptism down by the river. There was a river in their town. And once a year he would go out and he would invite people from his church to get rebaptized, or people from the community to be baptized for the first time. And he said he was waist deep in the water, grabbing people by the back of their head, don't get it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while he was baptizing someone, he said that over the bluff coming toward the river was the town drummer. Now the town was small enough that everyone knew that this was the town drum. His name was Larry. So this guy said Larry started coming down. He was struggling to keep his line straight while he was walking, in. his ankles got in the water and his knees. And pretty soon he was up to his waist next to this preacher in the water with whiskey on his breath. He said, Preacher, I need you to get baptized. And the preacher said, Okay, Larry, are you ready to give up the bottle forever and give your life to Jesus? Preacher told me that in a moment of rare clarity for this man, he realized what he had been asked. Could he give up the bottle forever and give his life to Jesus? And the drunk said, I don't think I can. And so the pastor told him to get out of the water. And he left. The pastor said that the following Sunday at church, there was a standing ovation for the pastor. Because he had held his moral clarity together. That he was a bastion of what it means to live in this world. That he had high expectations for his Christians. He said he got more emails than he could read. From people in his church and people in the community just thanking him for standing up for something good and right and true. He said he's never felt more rewarded his whole life. All the while, he had never felt more worse than because even though he felt like he had done the right thing, in the back of his head he kept hearing this line, this line from Jesus, I have come not for the well, but I have come for the sick. I've come not to save those who are well, I've come to save sinners. Six months later, my friend left church, and then went back. Gave up ministry for ever. Because he realized he had been selling people goods that he had expected their perfect morality and their achievements, that those were the things they had to have to be a Christian. He was selling goods and realized one day that you can't sell grace because grace is an expensive, it's not even cheap. Grace is free. And he couldn't stand to be a church who did that anymore. He realized something. He realized that it was time for him to wake up. Because God's grace is different than anything else in existence. You don't have to do anything to earn it, you can't deserve it. It is given to you for free. The time has come to wake up. And it's not going to be easy. Because we all have to kick these addictions we've grown so comfortable with. And not necessarily the addictions that we might be thinking about in our minds. We've got to do whatever it takes to flush down the toilet all of our pills of morality and perfection. We've got to pour out the bottles of judgment and self-righteousness. Why? Because God's grace is bigger than all of our finger-wagging. And it is never contingent on our ability to be good. As I've said more times than I can count... God loves you and there ain't nothing you can do about it. In fact, it is our inability to do much of anything that precedes the reason for grace in the first place. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. It's on this side of receiving something remarkable. It's on this side of seeing and tasting and touching God's unending love and grace. In spite of our earnings, in spite of our deservings, That's only when we start to live differently. Our desires to be better, though most of us usually fail, they only ever come as a response to what God has done and never as a prerequisite. That's why Paul can say, live honorably. Not in reveling, not in drunkenness, not in debauchery, not in licentiousness, not in quarreling, not in jealousy. He can do so not because those things warrant God's love, but because God's love is such that we can never be the same. Because it really doesn't matter if we're jealous, or if we're drunk, or we're licentious. It can never remove what God has already given to us in Jesus. There is nothing on this earth that will make God love you any more or any less. There is nothing on this earth that can ever separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Today is a new day. Today is a new time. It's the beginning of a new year. It is Advent. Because everything has been changed for us. I know it might seem strange to start on such a strange note, but maybe it's the note we need the most. Because it's something about this time of year that we feel this oppression, this desire to get everything done, to appear like we've got it all together, where we compare ourselves to the people around us, finding our own worth and our value in what we think the worth and value were given by other people. Instead, Paul says to us today, I've got something new for you. Wake up. You've become trapped in your own nightmare of your own making. And now it's time to wake up. You've got to destroy those systems, those expectations that drive you away from each other. And instead come closer to each other. The time has come, as he puts it, to put on the Lord Jesus to remember your baptisms. To remember who you are and whose you are. Because friends, there is no hope in us. We do things we know we shouldn't. We avoid doing things we know we should. If it were all up to us, we would all fail. And that's why we can give thanks to God, because he has not made it up to us. He said, my hope isn't in you. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And that's all that matters. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. My very first Christmas Eve in ministry, I was incredibly nervous. The state of the church today is that you'll have more people on Christmas Eve than you'll have on any Sunday leading up to Christmas Eve. It's when the c crowd comes, the Christers, the Christmas Eve and the Easter people. And I was literally nervous. I was in a small town, I was thinking, you know, this is going to be maybe by one chance to share the love of God with people who would never otherwise come to church, tried to make everything perfect. I got all the lights working in the sanctuary. I had gone over my sermon 15 times to make sure we all had our little candles to hold up for silent I and mean, everything was going to be perfect. And I can remember standing at the door welcoming people in on this cold December night, saying Merry Christmas and all this good stuff. And there was an older member of my congregation who came up from his car and he could not walk in a straight line because he was drunk as a skunk. He had had uh, a few too many at the table for Christmas Eve with his family. And then thought, you know what? I should still go to church anyway. (laughs) I could see him stumbling across the dark park uh, trying to make his way to these big doors we had at the church. And I was laughing. I thought it was really, really funny. And we had this usher next to me. And he whispered in my ear, you're not going to let him in, are you? And for a moment, I confess, I took him seriously. Because I thought maybe I shouldn't let him in. There are all these people who are going to experience our church for the very first time. What are they going to think about us if that drunk comes in here during worship? What are they going to tell their friends about this church when they leave tonight? What if no one ever comes back? (laughs) But then in a moment of profound and very rare pastoral clarity, I realized, he needs to be here more than anyone else. So when he walked out, I wrapped my arms around him. I told him I was so happy to see him. And he said, Merry Christmas! <laughs> Later on in the service, I was still maybe, you know, kind of regretting my decision a little bit. I thought, maybe like, this is not a good idea. there was something about Christians when we sing away in danger that we just don't do it with any joy. Away, in the manger, the manger for It was so boring when I was singing until I heard from the very back pew, my man, away! Ever had a church. <laughs> because that's the thing. We, we make it out to be you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to get your life together, you've got to have it figured out, and the problem is none of us have it figured out. We are all floundering. We're all struggling to keep our necks above water. Some of us are really good at making it seem like we're not doing it, but we're all doing it. And that's grace. Grace is for all. Think about this table. Think about the time that Jesus gathered his friends for the first time. He looked out of the table of a bunch of people who were going to betray him, deny him, and abandon him—all people who weren't going to measure up. He said, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to do it." Lord, we are grateful that you would invite to this, your table, more than we would. We are grateful that you've looked at our lives and you've seen every one of our sins. You've checked your list and you know that we don't deserve it. But you decided to throw out the list, to get rid of your ledger. You've decided to make something of our nothing. And for that, we are grateful. We are grateful that you've looked into our heart of hearts and said, I make you new. As we prepare to gather here, Lord, we are grateful for all that you've done, all that you were doing, and all that you will do. For you are the light that shines in the darkness. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.